Welcome to this Euractive debate on how can a shift to a circular economy in the EU contribute to a climate-neutral Europe. Our program today is supported by the Environmental Defence Fund. I'm Brian McGuire. If you want to follow us on social media today, uh, EA Debates, hashtag EA Debates, and you can post there. Our social media team will interact with you uh, directly. And if you're going to send questions today, uh, our online audience and studio audience as well, you then use Slido, and the hashtag is CircularEU. See it on the screen just there, so circular EU. We're going to take questions throughout the discussion, not just at the end, uh, so don't hesitate to begin sending those questions in now, and we'll get to those in a few minutes uh, with our panel. So shifting to a circular economy model is perceived as crucial for the European Union to achieve its goal of becoming climate neutral by 2050. A circular economy model implements material efficiency strategies throughout the value chain from product design and use, longevity and durability to mechanisms that enable proper separation of materials at the end of life phase, allowing for the recirculation. Despite efforts uh, made as part of the 2020 Circular Economy Action Plan, EU-level policy governing European industry has yet to satisfy climate organizations who argue that the full potential of the EU in regulating the circular economy shift has yet to be utilized. So 2024's new European Commission and Parliament will provide a fresh opportunity to renew efforts towards circular economies and address the risks associated with not adopting circular practices, especially concerning uh, material extractions. We have a, a great panel with us today. Uh, we have uh, beside me William Neal, advisor for Circular Economy at DG Environment at the European Commission, Martin Porter, Executive Chair at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, Helen Spence-Jackson, Associate uh, Vice President for European Strategy and Engagement at the Environmental Defence Fund. And uh, also we have online Owen Griffiths, he's Head of Circular Economy uh, at Volvo Cars. And last but not least, uh, Stefan Arditi, he's the Director for Climate, Circular Economy and Industry at the European Environmental Bureau. Great to have you all with us. Uh, great to see you online, Owen, as well. Uh, we're going to ask each of our panelists to do 60 seconds, a quick intro and an overview of what uh, their key message is today. William, let's kick off with you. 60 seconds. Thanks, Brian. Well, I think the first thing to say is that circular economy isn't an end in itself. Uh, we didn't just suddenly decided we don't like linear anymore, we're going to go circular. It's really a means to an end, and one of, one of those important ends is, is uh, climate, meeting our climate goals, in addition to biodiversity, uh, also competitiveness, and, and so on. And the reason for that is because the way we use materials really counts in all of those areas. We know that even if um, we all meet our pledges and the nationally determined contributions and so on by 2030, we'll still have a 25 gigaton gap in meeting our Paris targets. Circularity is one of the ways of uh, bridging that gap, of, of delivering there, um, and the IPCC has started to recognise that. Um, and I think there are three main ways we can do that. One is through material efficiency, so really lowering the material inputs into the economy, getting more value added per tonne. The second is keeping products in use, as you just said, um, so we have lower demand for new products and all of the, the materials that need to go in for those. And then the recycling, of course, um, so that's lowering demand for virgin products, but also, I mean, if we start uh, diverting things like bio-waste from landfill, then we really reduce the, the methane emissions from that landfill. So, Circular Economy Action Plan, the Commission has um, identified six value chains, and those value chains basically cover um, 85 to 90% um, of uh, all carbon emissions, those, those six value chains. Eco-design... Uh, regulation which we adopted last year is covering about 65% of all product of, of emissions um, coming from products. Uh, I think the difference is probably because we don't include food. So 
there is a, a huge potential for actually achieving um, those emission reductions through circularity. And yeah, let's okay. uh, carry on talking about those as we, as we go through the, 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 uh, the panel. Thank you, Will. Martin. Thank you, and thank you for the invitation. Um, I should clarify, I'm CR Cells Executive Chair in Brussels. Okay. It's through Brussels that we actually facilitate the work of CLG Europe and a task force uh, that looks at materials and products and the link between climate and circularity. So a lot of what I say is based on that experience of working with companies in this area as well. But as a first point of, of reference, I think, it's important to, uh, to contextualize how well or badly we're doing on the progress that we're talking about here. And actually, when we're talking about movement towards a circular economy, whether you take the European Court of Auditors that just published a report yesterday on this, or Circle Economy, which publishes a regular report on it, we are far too linear. We're still 90% linear, probably 10% circular, and it needs to turn around. That's the potential that can contribute to climate action. And exactly as William said, we're still way off on that as well. And the potential through basic industries, chemicals, steel, cement, but also through all of the associated downstream industries to do much more on this, uh, it's not uh, a nice to have. It's going to be indispensable okay. to achieve climate targets. Um, so that's the first thing to say. Um, the second is that actually when we're looking at the level of ambition on climate action as well as uh, uh, circularity, it should be with a view of aiming towards 1.5 degrees. And we're still not yet aligning on that with our circular economy ambitions. Okay. Therefore, uh, whether it's the uh, Science Advisory Board's recommendations, which we've just seen, uh, the emphasis needs to be on greater ambition on circularity to achieve uh, climate action. Work that we've done through the Materials and Products Task Force, as well as others, suggests there are three or four areas that we need to put much more emphasis on in the next phase, if okay. you want, of circular economy action. Uh, much greater uh, ability to measure properly what we are talking about here. Metrics matter, and we can do a much better job at looking at that for the economy as a whole, but particularly on cir circularity. Much better work on the link between finance and investment and the way in which the circular economy can be further developed. Uh, better integration of the work that businesses and consumer groups and environment groups do with the European Commission and, and EU institutions. And I think lastly, I would say the link between this and the industrial strategy discussion. Okay. Sustainable competitiveness is a way we used to talk about the, this, this challenge. I would term it as competitive sustainability. Okay. Circular economy is an enormous opportunity for businesses in Europe where we have leading companies doing a great job to excel on the global stage as well. And we can talk more about that. Thank you so much. Helen. Thank you. So perhaps a quick word about um, Environmental Defence Fund. First of all, as we're sure. a bit of a new kid on the block in terms of the Brussels bubble. Uh, but we've been around for a good 50 years um, internationally, uh, based in the US, China, India, and now more recently in Brussels. And our approach is very much um, hands-on. It's about bringing real-world um, scientific and socioeconomic data from the field to help guide both uh, businesses and uh, policy makers in terms of um, the decisions they're making around the environment and climate. And in that context, we've noticed that there's quite a disconnect between the awareness, the growing awareness of the potential of circular economy amongst business make, uh, sorry, amongst policymakers, um, where it's reasonably well understood that there is this potential for circular economy um, to reach our climate goals, but this hasn't necessarily translated through to many businesses. And there is a sense perhaps that some businesses who are trying desperately to meet their net zero plans right now, they might have thought, okay, let's do energy efficiency, tick. We've thought about perhaps uh, resource efficiency as well in terms of um, switching to renewable energy, but they haven't necessarily thought about the circular economy potential right now. So 
we've been looking into some of what the benefits are for um, businesses to deliver further co-benefits for them in terms of their business proofing their models for the future, for reducing their costs, but also um, looking at supply chain shock um, resourcing as well in terms of um, hedging against risks against that. And so as an organization, we've been carrying out a couple of studies recently with Trinomics, uh, where we were looking at some of these, these siloed issues between climate and circular economy to try and see what the potential is for businesses of bringing these two things together. Um, and we're also working with Deloitte on a new report that will be published very soon around net pathways to net zero, which will be part of a, a net zero action accelerator that we're starting to okay. launch very shortly with the organization. We'll hear more about that later. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's go to Owen. Hi there. Uh, firstly, uh, sorry I can't be with you today and thank you very much for having me on the panel. Um, so I think most of you will probably know Volvo Cars um, and we are distinctly different to Volvo Group and the trucks. So um, my role here is head of circular economy and, and how do we see it within our organisation? Well, ultimately we see circular economy uh, and its effective uh, execution as a way of decoupling the growth of the organization and in doing as in uh, in growing uh, delivering more utility to customers and users of our products so decoupling that from the use of primary resources uh, and in the first case because of the data that's available primary materials um, we've categorized it into three areas one is using less resources and, and that means materials water and energy um, and, and and like the other panelists have said, focusing on waste and, and, and actually looking beyond carbon as well and the benefits that can be gained from a circular solution um, to biodiversity and the, and the natural environment. And then the third pillar is about growing circular business, again, resonating with everything that's been said so far about resilience and um, finding new ways to, to develop new supply chains and deliver utility to customers with circular models. Um, so uh, I'm very pleased to be here and uh, to go into more detail on those topics. You on? Welcome back to you on that. And uh, lastly, uh, Stefan, over to you. Sixty seconds. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much. So <clears throat> I would first uh, recognize, as the other uh, speakers, that there is some potential for circular economy still to be grasped. And I think the uh, just the report really is showing that we focus too much on waste uh, uh, today compared to the potential of circular economy tend to show that through climate perspective, we could potentially also galvanize the circular economy uh, consideration. For me, this raised fundamentally the question of how can we capture the benefits of circular economy? Because, for example, you see the, the way we set our uh, carbon target is based on production-based emission, not on consumption-based emission. So that's why we are now progressing toward carbon footprinting of product or whole life carbon of cars, which is very important because you know, if you follow the, 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 the information that, for example, the shift toward uh, electric vehicle tend to preserve the uh, um, putting on the market of heavy vehicle, you know, like SUV and stuff like this. If we can address the whole carbon of cars, for example, we also provide an incentive to reduce the weight of car then uh, increase the autonomy. And I'm just making that toward Owen because I'd like him to, to react on this. Finally, I think the circular economy also uh, question what we can do from the demand side and trying to reduce the demand side. Why is it important? Because if we do not want to compete too fiercely to access the critical raw material, we also have to reduce pressure 
on critical raw materials by reducing the demand where we can. Or I'm just out of a, a, a panel on bioeconomy, and it seems that you know the pressure on, bio, on biomass will be uh, uh, huge. And that's why we are pushing the idea of a resource use reduction target based on the material footprint indicator uh, produced by the European Commission in their monitoring framework as maybe the best way to address uh, the potential for circular economy to decarbonize our economy. Thanks. Thank you. Owen, you want a quick response on the making lighter vehicles? Uh, we support the idea that lighter vehicles have a lower environmental footprint, and we've just released the, the first uh, small SUV, the EX30. So we, we see where you're coming from. Uh, there is also um, a need for bigger vehicles. So um, the, the ability for seven-seater vehicles to be on the market to provide um, a solution on that topic is important. So, um, uh, yeah, hopefully the uh, the EX30 is a, is a signal of the direction that we go with our product. Okay, thank you for that. We'll come back to these issues a little bit more. I want to start off, uh, Martin, just to follow up on what you said about 90%, 10%. There's some margin for improvement there. Where do you see the low-hanging fruit? Well, I mean, there are studies which look at the, the range of options that we've talked about. So material okay. uh, circularity, product circularity, and I think that in addition to that, business model circularity. And actually, once you get to the business model circularity, you, you think differently about the problem and the potential solutions. Okay. Uh, that's maybe not the low-hanging fruit because it takes that much more effort, but that, then you change the way you think about the system. Um, the materials and the products are where most of the emphasis has been put so far, and obviously product design, so early stage rather than waste management. Uh, there's much more that we can do to actually make effective what has already been agreed and put into uh, uh, legislation already, actually. The, the European Court of Auditors report, I think, makes that very clear, sure. that actually there's quite a lot on the, uh, on the statute that is simply not implemented at national level yet. Um, there's a monitoring uh, role there to, to be had. That's low-hanging fruit. There's, they should do more with what we already have. And that links a little bit to the investment and the finance uh, question, I think, member states having the capacity to do that. So I'd say doing better what we already have agreed, okay. possibly the lowest-hanging fruit. Uh, and innovation in business models is where the biggest potential systemic gains uh, lie and where we're focusing at the moment. Obviously, we need to do all of this. All right. Well, then why haven't we done what we've already agreed? Well, we're doing it. I think <clears throat> um, I'd agree with a, a lot of what has just been said. Um, uh, there are low-hanging fruit. I mean, things like eco-design, where um, we are expanding what is, has been proven to work already. Eco-design directive just applied to uh, energy use in the use phase of a product, of energy-using products, has resulted in annual savings um, of energy equivalent to the total wind power production in Europe over the last 10 years. So it's been proven to work. Now we've expanded it from that 14% of um, uh, emissions, pro products covering 14% of emissions, to 65% of emissions, so further 49%. Um, so we'd, we'd, we're taking a proven model and we're, um, we're expanding it. But of course, yeah, we, we have to wait for that to go through the through co-decision. Okay. I would completely agree um, that we really need to work on implementation. And I mean, we've had waste uh, targets um, 
Uh, we still need to talk about waste, even if it's maybe not the, the most effective thing. We have had waste targets for decades, uh, which many member states still aren't meeting. We need to help them to do that with the right investments, with, with capacity building. And we saw when we asked member states to come to us with, with uh, recovery and resilience plans uh, after COVID and to make them circular, I could see that even those member states that have a, a good narrative and have uh, action plans and strategies for circular economy across, across ministerial, still the capacity to do that on a technical level, to, to write specifications and do procurement okay. in circular ways, whether it's for buildings or rolling out EV uh, infrastructure or whatever, is not there. So we really need to work on that implementation side. Okay, thank you. Helen, this would seem to be right up your lane as well in terms of uh, you've identified the need for an accelerator. First of all, why? Well, really, it was a sense of businesses want to reach their net zero plans, but they sometimes need some help to do that. And some, there are some large companies that are, are more than able to do it, but they, it's for some smaller companies, it's, it feels like yet another thing that they need yeah. to do, and they don't necessarily understand that there can also be a benefit to them for getting it right as well. So it's really to try and um, help them to understand that there is this circular um, connection to, to climate, which is also going to be good for their businesses ultimately in the long run as well. Okay, just to come back to Martin on, on this, the, the idea of changing the business model, this, this kind of leadership that's needed, it takes time, yes, but what's intrinsic to that mindset? What are the, the dynamics within that shift? Well, I think if, uh, I mean, in the, in the uh, corporate leaders group uh, activities, there are, there are companies there who are doing this and seeing the benefits. They can see the benefits uh, strategically because they are saving money in the short term very often, but also developing business um, solutions which will be attractive in the medium and long term. So their business strategy is innovative and it drives innovation fundamentally. And as part of a, a process of transition that we're engaged in here, any company that isn't doing that is going to suffer. Okay. So I think the, the, the mindset of innovation driven by climate targets, sustainability more broadly, but on circular economic thinking as well, um, has huge business potential. And I think the economic uh, pos uh, potential here is a, in a very important uh, dimension to underline. Obviously, there are environmental drivers, but to get the type of uh, collective uh, action that we're talking about here, obviously, we need all businesses to, to, to think and be circular in the end. Um, but there is enormous uh, economic opportunity for them when they do that. Stefan, can we achieve our 2050 uh, targets without the circular economy? Well, I said, uh, 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 in a way, I don't think we can reach the 1.5 degree uh, objective we have without the circular economy. This is very clear. The problem is that at the moment, we do not necessarily have the right target, the right framework to link, really, the uh, saving of embodied emissions, so that's the emissions that are captured when we manufacture, when we extract, when we produce product, to make the link between disembodied emission and the climate target we have. And I think that's really, really a big uh, kind of gap that we need to correct, because what we've seen in the past is that because we had the climate and energy target, we really created a whole dynamic in different sectors, in industry, and the industry was rewarded uh, for being innovative. At the moment, I do not see the same. So circular economy is still a matter of optimizing internal process for the industry, and that's why it's so complicated for new business model to compete, because basically they have to compete with an optimized linear 
uh, economy for years. So that's why I really think that we need to unleash the potential by linking more embodied emission uh, saving and energy use saving or type of energy uh, mix we have, which are properly captured today. And I also think that I'm, I really have no fear about the possibility for uh, industry to innovate and to adapt. The point is that, you know, we say without the right indicators, you do not motivate the right behaviors. Okay. And I think at the moment, that's what we need. We still need the right indicators to drive the right behaviors. But a lot of smartness is there, ready to okay. link to me. If I understood correctly, Martin, I won't put this uh, to Owen. Um, the synopsis of yesterday's report was uh, data, finance, stakeholders, and competitive in industrial strategy. Yeah? Owen, from Volvo's perspective, you know, when you're looking at innovation and this gap that Stefan lays out, when you talk about data, finance, stakeholder participation, and a competitive industrial strategy, where are the gaps? What needs to close? Well, I, I think the data point is foundational to all of those aspects to communicate, to, to be honest, to be frank about the problems and the challenges. And we, we do have a, a quite a significant lack of data. Uh, I think the point that's made about um, uh, the, the life cycle of the vehicles, we don't actually have data on, on all vehicles across the life cycle. So we don't know about actual utilization. We have very, very limited data about the um, the materials that we get from the supply chain where we don't buy directly from the source. Um, and so the comparison between a sustainable solution versus a non-sustainable material or component is very difficult. Um, so even we have an internal cost for carbon, um, in some cases we just can't do it. And so what's the fallback when we don't get the data? Should it be zero that we don't have any inherent recycled content for copper, steel and aluminium? Well, that's quite a hard sell, really. There's probably something in there. So. There is this sort of gap of data, and then where there is no data, people often re revert to something that's probably um, safe, but maybe not true. And so it's a bit hard to actually grasp where we are exactly. Um, what it is fair to say is that um, I think that we, we know that there isn't enough of the recycled content needed uh, to go back into the automotive sector um, at the grades that we require high recycled content. Uh, and that's due to um, a, an infrastructure that's designed really well for avoiding waste. 96% of the, 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 the vehicles are recycled, but the quality of that recirculation isn't suitable to keep it at the highest value for the longest period of time. Again, another area where we don't have data and the amount of investment there is, um, it, it, it seems to be quite limited um because a lot of the players there are, are, are quite a lot of the organizations are quite small and so how do you direct financing to some of these organizations that need to move from being quite traditional processes of material to uh, advanced processes so so there's finance issue there um stakeholders uh so so there is a there is a challenge here that a large organization like volvo cars has to engage with an awful lot of value chain stakeholders that takes an awful lot of time and the internal processes to make sure that you can do that effectively and set up the right projects. So all of those aspects have problems surrounding them and they're all absolutely critical to make this happen. Um, what I would say maybe to focus on is that um, within all of this, there is a sort of a central problem with electronics. 
has the highest um, highest sort of biodiversity footprint and a highest embodied carbon per kilogram that we we can see in the vehicle um and so this is an area there is a major lack of data the stakeholders that we need to collaborate with are sort of a bit unknown as well and, and there doesn't seem to be um there doesn't seem to be a, a targeted approach to tackling that and so that's a really hard area for us at the moment okay. we know sort of what to do on plastics steel aluminium copper and then you're straight down to electronics which is which is really problematic and all of the the, the factors you've just pointed out there are critically uh, difficult thank you, thank you. Uh, let's uh, focus on the data for a moment william uh, as well you and tie it in with sectors do we need all sectors to be strongly embodying the, the circular economy or do we need to focus on key sectors like transport and textiles and let's go back to the data what data uh, it's surprising to me that this data isn't available at the moment what, what's necessary now to, to, to determine those actions we need to work on principally on on the uh, economic activities on the value chains which are the highest impact ones and we know that it's you know, it's buildings it's mobility um, <clears throat> it's food um, but we know that they're also the sectors which have the highest potential uh, for improvement through circularity so the IRP in respect of um, built infra infrastructure said that um, circular solutions in the G7 circular solutions could result by 2050 in an 80 to 100 percent reduction in emissions um, for mobility, I think it was in the order of, I think it's 57 to 70% um, reduction. Ellen MacArthur Foundation said for food, it's about 47% um, potential. So, of course, those are the areas where we have to focus. When it comes to data, I mean, we've just uh, adopted about three weeks ago a new monitoring framework for circular economy. We're trying to expand the data sources that we use. Um, it's not always easy. I mean, the, the one that we, which is frequently quoted, the sort of 10%, the circularity gap, is to do with the circular, circular materials use rate. So it's the amount of materials that are going back into the economy, um, the amount of uh, secondary materials that are going back into the economy. And picking up on what Owen said, it's not just about the quantity. We really need to work on the quality of the recycle that's going in, particularly in the areas that he said, like steel and aluminium, um, where... Copper contamination is a big problem. It means that things that the, the steel can't be used or the aluminium can't be used for the same uses. Um, so it loses value. Uh, it reduces the circularity. And a big part of that, again, <laughs> related to what Owen was saying, is, is because of electronics. If you can't take the electronics out of the vehicles that are thrown in the, in the shredder or a washing machine which is thrown in the shredder, then, um, then the copper gets in there uh, and you have problems. The... the way to tackle that is through, again, eco-design. If you can um, say that in the design of a product, the, say, a washing machine, the electronics have to be removable in 30 seconds, then that makes it viable to take it out and throw it in the copper recycling and make sure that the steel um, is more pure. So these things are very much interlinked. And I think when it comes to electronics more generally, I mean, we only recycle about 40% of electronics. But going back to um, what Stefan was saying about the embodied carbon, for certain things like smartphones, 80% of the, the emissions from, that, uh, from a smartphone are before you unwrap it. So in that, in that case, at, at the average lifespan of a, a smartphone is two or three years, the, the, the most important thing is to prolong the life of that smartphone so it doesn't have to be replaced and then you have to um, 
incur all of, the, all of those emissions again by extracting more material to build a new one. When it comes to things like um, uh, television screens, um, the average lifespan is a lot longer. It's about seven years, but the uh, in-use emissions are about twice as big as the production emissions. So there is a nuancing there, but it is true that we have not focused enough on those embedded emissions generally, whether it's in buildings or electronics or in many other areas. Okay. Alan, you want to respond to that? Yeah, I do. And I, I think it's a really good nuance that you've just added to the to the comment I made. But I think that there's one thing, uh, the eco design directive is, is, is good and it's a helpful means to making positive steps for the future. And if we're looking to 2040, that's a great, um, uh, it needs, it's a foundation to, to make these things happen. But for us in the automotive sector, we're dealing now with vehicles, if, if you want to get into the recycling space, you, you have to deal with vehicles that were placed on the market in the 2000s and, and sometimes even older than that. And so I think absolutely we need to look to the future and make sure that we're, we're putting in place the right structures, systems and foundations to, to deal to be in an improved position 2030, 2040, 2050. But we've also got to find a way that that material that's currently on the market can be much more effectively utilized and, and retain it as high a value as possible today. And, I, and, and that's based on um, effective collection, dismantling, sorting, separation and, and shredding, uh, as well as reuse where possible. Thank you, Helen. Sure. Silos that we sometimes see in different areas of policymaking, because it does also seem that you know, we hear a lot about the twin transition of, of digital and, and uh, green, and I think those are very much siloed. And we see that, you know, in, in, as you've just been discussing there, in terms of the design and the use of the electric um, devices. But we're also seeing it, for example, um, in the future uh, with AI, in terms of the AI regulation, which is actually still very weak in terms of the environmental aspects here. So we could see transparency increase there around provisions for re resource consumption and, and other environmental impacts. And we were wondering if there could be more pressure perhaps um, to think about circularity um, of products that are connected to this in a way that um, we saw with some companies around renewable energy with their server farms around 10 years ago. It might be the right time to also be thinking about some of these aspects as well. Thank you. We're going to take some questions now. Please keep sending your questions in. So this one goes to everyone, first of all. It's from uh, Trudy Bernier for CO2 Value Europe. I also is Trudy, and what about the carbon feedstock used in products focusing on reduce, reuse, recycle is crucial, but if we can't still, if we're still using fossil carbon feedstock, how can we be carbon neutral? Uh, why is there not any binding legal provisions on this discussed at EU level? William first, maybe Stefan after. Mm. You can pass. I'll pass on that one for now. <laughs> okay, so uh, I hope I've uh, properly understood the, 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 the question. Uh, I, I think it's, it's coming back according to me to what I, 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 I've tried to, 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 to suggest that maybe we are missing still the right indicators. Um, sorry to look opportunistic here, but what we've heard, electronics is an issue because uh, uh, it's it's really uh, uh, creating a lot of uh, 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 a huge carbon footprint. Then we've got the quality of steel that is not recycled to the right level. And uh, we also mentioned, I mentioned, the issue we have with always bigger vehicles being placed on the market. Imagine we've got a whole life carbon indicator associated to product placed on the market. Suddenly we unleash, you know, all the innovation potential uh, uh, 
because some will say, okay, so I make my electronics longer lasting and dismantable, replaceable, so that they don't contaminate the steel. And other will say, okay, with my colleagues, we are launching a, a, a plant so that the recycled steel will be without copper, so we can reuse also flat steel in automotive sector. And uh, uh, some like us say, if you've got the whole life carbon, then the one putting lighter vehicle on the, the market, so consuming less, you know, material, will be also uh, kind of benefiting from this. So you see, that's why I think, so to the question by the, 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 the remote person, I think that the idea is that if you try to slice too much, you know, about Ah, this part should be reused, this part, you will always be confronted with this idea, oh, but you are imposing too much of a framework. In contrary, if we can find, you know, the right uh, uh, guidance so that different models can then coexist, challenge each other, and, and unleash the potential, I think it's, it's better. So, Okay. Or the, the, the CO2 footprint. But maybe I've misunderstood. I just want to say something that if this person was saying, yes, beyond reuse, extending lifetime, we'll still have some carbon, so we'll need to go to carbon uh, uh, capture, storage, and utilization. Okay. Uh, that's something we can discuss, but uh, I, I was not sure. Anything else on this one, Ed? Um, well, I'd say, uh, I mean, the uh, circle economies analysis, I think, is a good starting point. If you look at all of the materials, many of which are fossil-based uh, fuels, yeah. they are very uncircular at the moment because so much is emitted as waste, essentially. So that's the CO2 problem we have. Um, if you turn it on its head and look at what we actually want to deliver as services, whether in an individual company or uh, for society as a whole, we need to provide mobility, housing, shelter, nutrition, food, and so on. And when you look at it in those terms and see what you need to deliver those services, it may be possible to shift very significantly away from the materials which are currently the major problem okay. and shift to alternative uh, materials where we don't have as much waste, whether it's towards uh, CO2 emissions and the climate, but elsewhere. But I think turning it on, on its head and starting with demand for services Okay. which comes back again to the business model innovation, actually is a way of addressing the, the fossil fuel feedstock question as well. Thank you. Let's, uh, do you want to add? I was just going to say, I think it's very important when we're looking at alternative feedstocks as well that we have good sustainability criteria for those alternative feedstocks because with biomaterials particularly, we're seeing um, them offered very frequently as a, as a substitute, but we certainly need to be aware that, that there are uh, impacts related to that. And just to, to, to come back to a little bit relating to what Stefan was saying about um, footprinting, carbon footprinting, but also what you're saying about um, electronics. Um, electronics is also a great enabler. I mean, it has a huge impact. In, we've talked about smartphones and so on, but it's a great enabler. And through the Digital Product Passport, which is uh, part of our eco-design for sustainable product regulation, so it's, this is bringing in... Um, data requirements and requirements for having a scannable tag and being able to have access to, to data about the circularity of products. One of the areas of data that we will be able to include in there is carbon footprinting, product footprinting and carbon footprinting. Now, um, not only will that enable, hopefully, um, consumers and others uh, to have a, a better overview of what is the carbon footprint of a product, um, we've also been working, um, uh, um, the Commission has, has uh, commissioned a, a study looking at how we can um, use that individual product data and 
bring it to a macro level so that we can actually look at the uh, climate impact of, um, of, of circular policies in, in those product areas. So not just for the individual product, but at a macro level. So this is an area where we, we're already looking at how we can use that data. And I think once the digital product, product passport is up and running in a couple of years for different product groups, we will be able to use that data um, and have a lot better idea about, uh, about climate footprint of products. Thank you. Question for Owen. Uh, from Marianne. Marianne says, if I recall rightly, you said 96% of vehicles are recycled. Uh, do you have a pointer to that number? And what are the remaining 4% made out of in regard to materials? Uh, I thought that was quite a, a well-known sort of fact that it's about 96% in Europe. Um, I'm sure that someone there will be able to help, but uh, I don't have a pointer exactly to that, maybe. Uh, but I can follow it up and always get back to you on it. Um, it what are the what's remaining? Uh, it's very difficult. I, I I don't actually know off the top of my head. I know that there there's some depollution processing that goes on which can't be recycled. Um, probably some liquids. Um, I I don't have the details. Sorry. Thank you. Anyone else? Stefan, you seem to be nodding on that. Okay. And then another question from Simon Fox to Martin, first of all. Uh, it says, at present, recycled content costs are driven by availability, while it should uh, drive resilience and lower costs. What needs to change in finance links uh, to circularity to bring systemic change? Does the, regulator, does the regulator need to focus differently to drive real change? Mm. Uh, yes, and I think the answer goes back to something Helen said, which is too much of the decision-making okay. is still siloed. So we don't give the right fiscal incentives, for example, to value uh, those sorts of materials in the way which would incentivize that. So we have a disconnect, not only in this area, but in many other areas, which means that there is a misalignment, essentially, of economic incentives. We know that, and the question is how to obviously address it um, uh, better. Um, I mean, I think um, if I were to take another uh, sort of very present example of that type of misalignment, the Critical Raw Materials Act, which is one of the major alternative sources of, uh, you know, the solution to climate change, um, does not put emphasis on circular economy principles sufficiently. It still talks predominantly about recycling rather than embedding from the outset an approach which is born circular. So again, that type of translation into the critical raw materials act is crucial for us to send the right economic signals through that act to all the economic operators who are going to be valuing those materials and wanting to use them. So uh, I think joining the dots is important. It's easily said, obviously. It's not difficult, whether you're in the Commission, the Council, or the Parliament, to, to always do that. But we still are too siloed in the way we address these issues. And I think critical raw materials, the Net Zero Industry Act, this is part of the response, obviously, to, uh, to climate. And it has to embed circularity from the outset. If we're not going to displace the problem, and send the wrong signals to companies who are starting to do the right thing. You know, we've got lots of examples of companies who are making investments. They would make more investments. They would make them more quickly and at greater scale if that was more harmonious, if you okay. want, or, or co coherent. Ellen? Yeah, I, I'm 
not, I'm not in any way advocating for um, attacks in this area before my comments are misinterpreted. But just as I mean, I know it's very always very complicated at the European level with with unanimity. Uh, but um, I was really interested to learn that of the total environmental taxes that we currently have in the EU, more than three quarters of them are on energy, and less than four percent of them are on pollution or on use of resources. So, I don't know if that's something the new Commission might want to think about in due course. Thank you, Stefan. Yeah, uh, thank you for raising this. I just want to add that uh, what Ellen is saying is right, but on top of this, if you uh, look at what's the amount of environmental and energy taxation compared to all taxation, this is also very ridiculous. So that means that if you combine what Ellen has just said with this, I think it's 3.5 of all taxation, which are linked to environmental and energy compared to everything else coming mostly from work uh, uh, taxation. And I think that that raises an interesting question. It is still our inability, I think, to um, seize the potential of progressivity in the way we uh, design our fiscal incentive or system. Just an example, and, and I'm super provocative here. Uh, on critical raw materials, I never say anyone saying, the more you use a certain critical raw material, the more you will be taxed per additional unit, for example. This could be huge, you know, as an incentive, because that means that as a business, you know, I know that the first few tons I will use of this material will not cost me a lot, but additional tonnage will cost me more. So I've got directly an incentive to reduce and to stick to what is so there my material ownership uh, model will come L then reuse and dismantling the parts so that i don't have to go through this high level and this is something we don't apply according to me to the the, the right potential let just another example on food you know that we are still basing our common agricultural policy on support to production you are a big farmer you produce tons of stuff you will receive per ton the same thing as a small farmer producing the first tons. So I think all our model is not really oriented toward optimizing resource and unleashing the smartness of new business model of this systemic change. And I think you should not be scared about speaking <laughs> about taxation. It's just clever taxation, taxation that is fair. And I think with this progressivity that is still very neglected, we could combine something that is both fair and creating the right incentive. Okay, well, you can't go back to France this summer after making those remarks. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go back to France this summer after making those remarks. <laughs> well, <laughs> we can see progress in France. <laughs> okay, some other questions. So, uh, William, I'm going to tie two together here. So, first one's from uh, Katharina. She says, will there be a new definitions of bio-waste in tomorrow's uh, EC proposal for waste framework revision? And if so, how will the Commission define them? And also for William from uh, Marisa, she says, I work at a circular waste uh, management company in the food sector. You mentioned in your 60 seconds introduction, uh, you don't include food. Could you elaborate on that since organic waste has a large impact on CO2 and it's relatively easy to bring into circularity? First part on the proposed new definitions of bio-waste. I couldn't possibly unveil what's going to be. Well, you could. <laughs> I did tomorrow. I could, but I might get sacked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we can announce it here. <laughs> 
looking yeah. for a new job. But uh, I mean, coming on, on on food, I think that um, uh, what we have to deal with initially is also the fact that we um, throw away thirty percent of our food, or we waste thirty percent of our food, and that is really um, uh, crazy. It, it, there, there are certain things which are just um, uh, indefensible. It's the same with the destruction of unsold goods. Um, this, these are things which have been produced and then which are just never used. So these are these are things which we are certainly tackling already. And just if I, if I may go back to the um, economic instruments sure. and uh, getting the prices right. I mean, the Commission is being brave enough to talk about taxes. I mean, in the, in the context of the semester process, we're giving recommendations and... and um, we are encouraging member states to, to work on that, and we're seeing things like you know VAT rates, reduced VAT rates for repair services, and various um, innovative ideas, but they are still very much on the niche. And I think what we uh, there are, there are very other, various other ways in which you can do it. You can have landfill charges. You can you can try and internalise some of the external costs. And one of the ways that we're trying to do that um, is particularly through extending the use of extended producer responsibility. So that is in existence for packaging and for electronic and electrical equipment. Okay. And also in the next uh, couple of weeks, we're coming out with our proposals for extending that to textiles on, and, and doing it in a way which is eco-modulated. So if you are producing and putting on the market something which is more difficult to recycle, then you should pay in more to the producer responsibility organization. So this is, I mean, on the one hand, at the, we're keeping the worst off the market through eco-design, through um, the sustainable finance taxonomy, we're trying to sort of um, promote, recognise, uh, measure and promote the, the best um, economic in terms of economic activities. But getting that mainstream sort of 80% of businesses in the middle um, to shift, you need to get those incentives in. And I think e the extended producer responsibility is probably one of the best ways of doing that. I'm sure taxation in the, is another, but uh, as you said, our, our capacities and, uh, uh, and so on are, are rather limited there. No, I think that that's all right. And I, um, again, with reference to the, uh, the role of businesses, uh, obviously there are lots of businesses who have a business model at the moment that benefits from, us, from a linear economy. And we have to find ways in which they are incentivized to change more quickly. One way is showing through practical examples there are successful businesses with solutions that are very successful in economic as well as in uh, sort of environmental and social terms. Uh, at addressing this, and the more we can showcase that okay. and, and nurture that in, in Europe, uh, and this comes back to industrial strategy, innovation, and obviously just uh, highlighting where that is the case so that it can show to, to policymakers, to customers, that is uh, possible to do and do well, we will hopefully create a, um, if you want, a, a virtuous circle okay. um, that will enable more to, to follow that. But obviously we're still at the point where we have a relatively small number doing that ambitiously and that middle ground exactly as William was saying needs to shift significantly towards that best practice. So virtual circularity, go ahead. I, I would just say that we can't just tell businesses to go circular. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, no, exactly. I mean that 80% of businesses they're, they're just trying to survive uh, and maybe thrive and I think that we have to bring in some very targeted um, advisory services. And actually, it's, it's not been noticed very much, but in the, in the Chapeau communication that we um, adopted with the eco-design proposal last year, there is um, a proposal by the Commission to set up a European circular business hub. And our intention is to do this through the existing um, Enterprise Europe network, which has about 500 or 600 hubs 
based in Chambers of Commerce and so on throughout Europe. They have sustainability advisors, and we need to equip them to advise businesses that come through their doors, but in a very tailored way. So they really need to have a, a tool which will give them access to um, uh, the most pertinent examples of business practices that they can use to advise those businesses. Otherwise, yeah, we, we're, we're not going to get to that mainstream. Yeah. Uh, we have loads of questions today, um, but I want to talk about uh, the next commission, next parliament in a moment. But just let me read some uh, comments. One from Flavio: Circular economy should not be a philosophical discussion. To be a real economy, we need to be able to reduce it to the main economic praxis. Uh, then we have uh, Nicola, who says large companies need to be encouraged in the consumer too with vehicles. This can be achieved by changing how they are taxed while on the road. Uh, any thoughts uh, on the panel about that? Member of the public suffering from pollution. Sorry to hear about that. And then we go to Claudia, who says progressive taxation of CRM makes sense if it is calibrated according to a criterion of efficiency. Otherwise, you might discriminate against uh, big companies. We have other questions. Please keep sending those in, and we'll get to those. Uh, Helen, if we do a bit of future scoping, um, what does the next commission look like in terms of circular economy? What does the next parliament look like? And we're beginning to get a sense of what that might look like in terms of composition. Um, where are we going in 2024? Well, luckily we've got William on the panel to tell us all about it, but I would say... I think, really, we're thinking about this from the perspective that there is, as you've heard from today, still so much to still be done. Yeah. But on the other hand, we also need to make sure that we're implementing what's already there. So I think we need to have a bit of a focus on, on quality implementation, um, almost overachieving on what the existing legislation is so that we are actually being able to um, move forwards. And it's, it can, of course, be a struggle for businesses to constantly catch up with an evolving regulatory framework. Um, but we need to uh, perhaps dig a little further into some of the questions that haven't been so deeply explored so far in circular economy. For example, there are some really interesting questions around just transition questions around circular economy moving for the, for, for the future if we want to better understand some of the social implications that... Um, we should be thinking about in this area. Um, I think certainly a great emphasis on, on R&D. And again, in the, circular, uh, in the Court of Auditors report that came out yesterday, there's a reference to the need to um, understand why some of these things aren't being taken up in a way that could potentially help for the future. Um, and I would say as well, we need to also think about this from the point of view of the global reach, because the EU is really heavily reliant on imports. So if we're sorting all of these questions out around the extraction and the processing of materials, we need to also bear in mind that there is a, a need to focus also on international cooperation and support here, both, both to help spread best practices between different global regions in terms of how we can work on this, but also to understand potential social impacts moving forwards as well. Stefan. Yeah, well, that's the big question. Uh, uh, first, we hope that uh, the next commission and the next parliament will be at least as brave as this one that is really continuing with a Green Deal perspective because we think this is the only way forward. So being climate, biodiversity, zero pollution, this needs to be uh, very high on the agenda. And honestly, today we are very scared about, I would say a bit, uh, you know, opportunistic voices just trying to oppose, you know, environmental and social standard to economic development when in fact, I think they themselves know it's completely wrong. But they use this for electoral purpose, and honestly, I hope that this voice will really be challenged, including by the industry itself, because I think there is not such a thing as the EU competitiveness without 
strong environmental and social standard. It's completely an illusion to pretend that the steel industry in Europe can ever compete with Indian steel, you know, if we do not have the right standard. So I think that's, that's really something, and I hope that the next commission, whoever they are, the next parliament, will take that seriously. You industry development is linked to you environmental and social policy for me. Second thing, I think it's, it's very important that we try to avoid, uh, you know, putting people against this. I just give an example. Uh, in a few days, maybe tomorrow, we will have a waste framework directive coming with food waste prevention target. Those food waste prevention targets have all been assessed on percentage reduction because we wanted to echo the 50% reduction target that we have as part of our SDG. But now, let's be very honest. If you are a country producing 200 kilograms per capita food, you know, reducing by 50% is a challenge. But if you are a member state producing 80 kilograms per capita, can you imagine what it means reducing 50%? That means going to 40 kilograms per capita, when the other country could have the objective by producing 100 kilograms per capita. I think these type of things need to be addressed. We need to pay attention not to, you know, frustrate too many people. And this, I take the example of you, but this can apply also at a, a national level or even at local level. So always paying attention not to put people in real difficulties where their survival reaction is to go against this. So I think that's... Uh, uh, Any tips uh, on how you might do that? Yeah, very, yeah, exactly. Very important. And I just want to rebound on what Elena said, which are, according to me is super important, is about the implementation. I, I, I really think this is right. But I warn about what I call the double language of some member state. Let me give you an example. I'm French. My own president say, oh, maybe it's time to stop regulating and just applying what it's applied. But exactly at the same time, we are discussing about eco-design, and we've all identified that enforcement is an issue. But the Council proposal is to reduce completely all, or not to even dismiss the provision set by the European Commission to implement better. So you see, I just want to warn. Yes, we can be serious on implementation, but please do not use this just to say we stop regulating on environment, we stop being intelligent, but when it comes to the resource I will dedicate at national level for market surveillance activities, don't come to me, I don't have the budget. So that's also the thing I'd like that we okay. address properly. Parliament, Commission, Martin, how do you see it? Um, well, I'm going to follow on from what was said. I think the, the point about implementation from the Court of Auditors report and so on, specifically on circular economy, is important, and that has to be uh, a priority. It's not really a new agenda in that sense, so I totally agree with what's said there. I think um, if we make the problem bigger rather than smaller, we're more likely to get the right solution in a way. The big debate at, at the moment, and is likely to continue, uh, over the next few years is on, let's call it industrial strategy in, in some form. The competition in the world, the race to net zero, which parts of the world are going to succeed in that uh, uh, to best effect. If the EU wants to succeed in that, it needs to keep doing what it has set out in its competitive sustainability European Green Deal agenda, which is set high environmental social standards and regulations, which actually promote innovation 
and investment and drive the sorts of economic activity which will put them in a leadership position. That is the type of winning agenda that ought to satisfy some of the social concerns if we direct it also at, at regional and local level in the right areas as well. Um, and it absolutely does not mean that you go back on the idea that uh, regulation suddenly becomes anti-competitive. Regulation is either good or bad, but it isn't necessarily pro or anti-competitive. Uh, the, the logic that we're following in the, in the European Green Deal and competitive sustainability is this will drive innovation for sustainability. And the EU is well placed in this, actually. It's, it's led in policy terms, in diplomatic terms. It needs to work with partners on much of this industrial strategy and the rest of the world because it risks, uh, because of the supply chains being so internationalized, obviously, uh, sending the wrong signal to some of those uh, partners or countries. Um, but it's got lots of potential. I've mentioned already the number of companies, certainly I'm aware of and working with, who are at the head of this, uh, this trend and this curve. Um, we need to support that and keep supporting that, and I think um, with more urgency and ambition than, than, than ever. But it is definitely not uh, stop regulating. Regulation has proven that it can be pro-competitive. It is also potentially too bureaucratic in other areas, but it's not as such the problem. It's smart regulation. And it's got a lot of good William. Is that, you know, the, comp the argument is well made, but it's complex. And so to Stefan's point about you know, the shifting dynamics in European politics, you know, you, when you go to the ground and try and explain this, you're back to gilets jaunes territory, aren't we? Where it's like, who's going to carry the burden? And uh, trying to explain these comp complex changes and be patient, it's all going to be worthwhile. That doesn't really cut it electorally. And then the idea that you can you know, do what we've already agreed, we're not moving any further until that's done, that's a more compelling argument for some politicians than let's go further, be more ambitious. William, uh, Commission, Parliament dynamics for 2024, how do you see it? Well, the first thing I would say is that the, the last elections, last European elections, really boosted my faith in European democracy because there you really saw that votes count and the, the Fridays for the future, that the whole discussions that I saw in debates uh, about climate, I think really influenced what happened in, with the Green Deal. Um, so I really hope that we, we, can, we see those debates continuing, we see people mobilised uh, on those issues. Um, when it I mean, of course, I can't say what the next commission is going to do, but it's not a case of being sacked if I do, it's just that I don't sure. know, it'll be for the new commission to decide. Um, I would agree that we need to focus on implementation. There's no point in passing regulations if they're not implemented, if they don't achieve their effect. Um, and we need to work with member states and with business to make sure that we're, we're achieving that. We need to um, uh, make sure that there's mutual learning, that, that we build a capacity that we make the, the private and public financing are, are aligned with our policy objectives and, and achieving the, the legislative objectives. Um, there will be... I mean, there's already stuff that's baked in that we're going to have yeah. to do in the next commission. So, I mean, if you look at eco-design, hopefully the Spanish presidency um, will seal, it, seal the deal and we'll have the framework legislation adopted at the end of this year. Then we will have to roll out product group by product group, all these delegate, delegated acts, um, which will bite. I mean, they will have impact, uh, whether it's on textiles, on electronics, on, on so con consumer goods or, or on the intermediate goods, on steel and, and so on. So... There, there is, we don't stop, you know, even if, even if we're not uh, doing sort of uh, big uh, framework legislation, we still will have uh, quite a lot of stuff baked in that we'll have to do in the future. I would say that two areas where I do agree that we need to work um, particularly, and we don't have enough good data and understanding, is the theme of today, which is really about 
making sure that the the data that we have about circularity, circular economy, is compatible and feeding into and transparent within our climate methodologies and climate data so that we really are able to um, gauge better how the, that contribution can be made. And then, as Helen said, I mean, a, a better understanding of the, the labour market impacts, the, the, the social impacts and the skills implications. Of, are we talking about an economic transition? Yeah. Um, and when it comes to just understanding the the climate impact, but also the, the social impact of circular proposals, we need to reinforce our knowledge there and, and the methodologies to, to have a better understanding. And let's go back to problem solving for uh, a disgruntled electorate. How does the accelerator uh, approach, not just your project, but the accelerator approach, help uh, alleviate some of these concerns where people can see a way through this transition to a more circular economy without the fear of, you're asking me to do more, I can't afford this, we don't have time. Well, I think getting to the point, I think it was Martin was making earlier in terms of holding up examples. Yeah. Yes, on the one hand, you can't just say somebody becomes circular, but by showing examples, you can help inspire action. And really, from, from our perspective, the, the um, Net Zero Action Accelerator that we're putting together really is about helping companies turn their pledges into actions, because okay. there's been a hell of a lot of pledges being made recently. Um, and this is really about people who um, maybe just need to um, find from, from examples of other champions who could look and see in their own business practices other things that they could potentially change. And the idea being as well that, um, yes, big companies might be um, in a different category to the smaller companies, but the smaller companies form part of the supply chains to the bigger companies. So there is certainly a, yeah. a self-fulfilling um, circle here of, of people that can inspire each other. So really it's about having learning modules and webinars and these sorts of things here where we can really help um, people to develop the knowledge and, and form partnerships. And, and learn from each other along the way as well. In this process, I always use Coca-Cola as a good example of this is because you, you mentioned the, the larger players and their supply chain as well. You know, do we need more regulation for smaller players when the bigger players can say, this is what we need, you meet the standard or you, you, you don't participate with this? You know, can we achieve more by working with larger businesses who really control the, the downstream supply chain? Interesting question. I'm not sure if Martin might okay, say that one. <laughs> I mean, I think you clearly need to do both. I think the, the SME part of the economy yeah. is enormous and uh, has to be part of the solution. If we miss that, obviously, whatever we do at the sort of big end of the, uh, of the corporate chain uh, will take too long maybe to, to cascade that. Um, that said, I think you're right. Most of the big players are in sort of economic ecosystems, whether it's innovation or supply chain related, where there is a where there is an effect uh, across all of that. Uh, and therefore, by incentivizing them and changing their behaviors, you can drive change up and down those, those value chains. I think okay. that's absolutely right. But it can't be only that. And there are many smaller companies who need different uh, consideration, okay. uh, different types of regulation for them to make sure that they can operate effectively in that context that won't be identical for the big players. Sure, thank you. Stefan. Yeah, just I think it's a very interesting question, and honestly, uh, uh, no certainty my side. But this is a risk we've identified with material ownership, you know. And now, for critical raw materials, we are engaged into thinking with what could be a raw material ownership, so that from mining, you know, you keep the property of the the, the product. So in a way, it's very appealing. But if we think about this, that means that the few big mining company could have even more control than they have today if the material they place on the market just owned them, you know, 
uh, radically. So this is a question we have with regard to distribution of wealth and distribution of. But for SMEs, I've got a, a very concrete example. Uh, at the moment, we are discussing the right to repair. And for a lot of people, the way to extend the longevity of product is to extend the legal warranty, for example. And we see that it's a good idea to extend the legal warranty. But if during the warranty time, you know, only the original equipment manufacturer can decide what's going to happen with the product, who can repair or not, suddenly a lot of SMEs that try to live from repair that make something very interesting from a business creation, from job creation, from environmental saving, suddenly they cannot anymore because they are completely under control of the big companies. So I think, again, I don't have certainty, but I'd like that we think together about this risk of concentrating wealth in a few hands and sometimes giving too much control to big companies, in fact, at the expenses of the development of SMEs. So, you know, thinking uh, along those lines Thank would you. be important. Uh, and on that, I'd just maybe add in terms of the right to repair, it was a little disappointing. It was a little incremental in terms of its approach, and perhaps that's something that could go further as well in terms of the new commission. Okay. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I kind of agree with a lot of what Stefan said, but I think also a lot of the um, value retention activities, the, the, it's fairly niche activities, but the very important ones, uh, which will expand hopefully due to eco-design and the fact that we make products more repairable and so on, uh, dismantleable, et cetera. Uh, a lot of those activities, well, nearly all of them really have to be delivered locally to where the product is consumed, where it's located. So, I mean, a lot of the big OEMs, big, big companies are maybe in other parts of the world, in China or wherever, but the the, um, they, they can maybe try to keep control of them to a certain extent, but a lot of those activities will be done by small companies, um, whether it's refurbishment, remanufacturing, repair, etc., um, and of course the waste management uh, locally. So there's a lot of potential for local jobs here, and I think we can link this to the sort of just transition and the social impact. If, we, if we're able to make sure that you know those jobs are being created in places where they're really needed, then that would be great. Okay, related to that question from Anton, he says, can the EU strategic partnerships also serve to promote centers of recycling excellence, for instance, solar panels, in the EU's near neighborhood, for instance, Morocco, Tunisia, or the Western Balkans? William. Well, why not? I mean, we're, we're working, I mean, the way shipment regulation is, is in a debate at the moment, which, of course, would in, impact on that. But um, it's also very interesting to note that um, although the interests of different global regions are different because they have different balances of mm -hmm. um, material richness, if you like. Um, we're seeing circular economy strategies springing up uh, all over the world. I was, I was looking at the, the ISO 323, so the ISO standard setting organization, global standard setting organization is working on, on circular standards and there are more than 90 countries around the world that okay. have, have said that they want to be part of that. So we are seeing a, a global interest. And in, in the, the um, uh, GAC area, which is our, our it's, it's, it's a global um, circular economy and resource efficiency um, group. We have countries um, like Nigeria, like Korea, like Japan, like Canada. I mean, it's not just um, uh, G7 countries, it's really across the board. So 
I can see that cooperation between those on circularity, on, on loops which maybe go outside Europe would be, uh, would be right. yeah, there's a potential there. Okay, thank you. Owen, uh, we're pretty close on time, so just one or two more questions, then we'll go to our wrap-up remarks. Uh, from John McLean, he said, I'm from an FMCG sector, and my question uh, is really Owen. Um, how important is it to prioritize closed-loop circularity where downcycling uh, of it is avoided? For example, PET can be recycled many times over for food contact applications, but if used in car production, it can never be recycled again. Owen. Um, well, I, I don't know about the specifics of that exact example with uh, aluminium, but what I would say is that I think the evaluation of the value that will be retained or whether the resources should go needs to be um, evaluated subjectively. So we've looked at the way in which um, uh, dashboard plastic can be reused and recycled and, and looking at the highest value solution for that from an economic perspective. But then there's a balancing act between the, the life length of the, the, the material that you're putting into a product as well. So uh, I think it's a, it's an area that we don't have a great deal of clarity yet, and it's something we're working on. Um, how do you balance the economic value at the time of transaction versus the the environmental displacement from it being a recycled material instead of the original material going in? It's um, it's not clear at the moment, but it's something that we're looking into to understand from the waste that we get from our own operations. Should we be always directing that into closed loops? or if we direct it to other organizations that can recycle it and to go into other industries, whether that retains more value from a, uh, an economic and sustainable sense. So it's very different. Uh, it varies for each material and each grade of material and the, the cleanliness of that material. Um, what I would say that for um, end-of-life vehicles is that the majority of material is shredded and it is downgraded into sort of quite crude um, uh, crude, crude products that are, are quite low value. Um, and that seems to be not the only technical solution. Therefore, it may be possible to keep it at a higher value for a longer period of time. So um, I think it is each material in, in each case needs to be evaluated on its own merits. Right. Based on closed you, chat GPT, it's a circular closed loop economy just right there. Uh, we have Claudia give us a question um, on circular economy, traditional talking points and civilization shifts. Sorry we can't get these questions, but just a shout out to those of you who sent it. Marisa, a circular waste management company, and she was talking about organic waste and animal feed. Clemens was asking about uh, recycling technologies and strategic tech under the NZIA. Uh, Marisa, uh, also about food sector and separating waste effectively. Lena was asking about the Green Deal and it should be a circular Green Deal. And Nicola was asking about the legislative action and uh, saying that's what get things done. Thank you. Sorry we couldn't get those in any more detail right now. Now we go to our wrap up uh, with our panelists. Oh, and let's kick off with you. Uh, your 30 second takeaway for today. Um, I think that where we are, we need to start focusing beyond climate we talk about biodiversity, but we don't do it with enough data and we need to go beyond climate and start sort of setting targets for for focusing on uh, nature and biodiversity. Number one. Number two, I think there's an awful lot of work going on in the circular economy space and it'd be great if we could prioritise and focus on the high impact areas. Uh, and number three, um, yeah, 
we want to turn to a providing more circular business uh, to the community and to customers, and we need more um, uh, support on doing that um, from local authorities and uh, governments. So it'd be good to get that. Oh, thank you. Stefan. Right, so uh, three main points, I would say. First, if you look at the new indicator uh, promoted by the European Commission in the circular economy framework, you see that both for material footprint and for climate footprint, we are exceeding the planet boundaries. So that means that there is an absolute need for Europe to completely reduce, you know, the use of fossil fuel and to also reduce the use of natural resources we, we use to be within the planet boundaries. Second thing, I'd like to warn against the greenwashing of circular economy, you know. There is a lot, and if you look today, for example, at the circular economy ISO standard, you know, it's really a shame, I'm sorry to, to use this word, what they are doing, because they just open the possibility for any company to be certified by doing very little, essentially on recycling, even energy recovery, and that will be enough. So really warning against not uh, deviating the circular economy from its real objective. And third thing, sorry, a bit of advertising, because we think that circular economy should not be cornered in Europe. So we are organizing on 11th of July, and you can still register, it's a webinar, on what is the impact of your circular economy beyond your boundaries. And we've got people from Vietnam and people from Nigeria that will come and speak about. Uh, Thank you. We're pretty tight in time, so let's go 30 seconds, Helen. So there's a strong business case to be yeah. to be made for embedding circular economy measures into companies' um, net zero plans. And we'd invite the new commission and those shaping it to be remembering that um, there's still lots to do, but that um, circular measures can help companies reach these net zero plans. And equally, for companies, that there are many co-benefits around it. And, and it's clear that there's no single circular solution. It very much depends in terms of um, what that could be. So companies need to identify and evaluate and prioritize the, the most appropriate circular measures. And a bit of advertising too, you've opened the floodgates. Um, <laughs> check out our Net Zero Action Accelerator once it launches in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. Martin. Very good. Um, I would underline again the points made about uh, data and target setting being crucial for the circular economy, but also for the economy writ large. So I would translate specific ambitious goals on circularity to the European semester as well, to ensure all the things we've spoken about in terms of you know, fiscal policy, investment, innovation more broadly, cascade into that process as well. And exactly as, as Helen has said, there is a business case here that will be better understood if we're able to do that. Thank you. William, last word. Thank you, friend. So first, focus on high impact materials and sectors, but also ones with high potential. Second, partnerships for implementation with member states, regions, cities. Um, third, um, work with business on uh, developing circular business models, and that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you to our excellent panel uh, for the terrific contribution today. Really good conversation. Enjoyed this a lot. Uh, thanks to the Environmental Defence Fund for supporting the programme today and to our studio audience and online audience as well. Your participation is great. We really appreciate all the questions that you sent in today. Really engaged to our events team uh, led by Anna for this programme as well. Uh, my thanks and all the production team that you don't see but they're uh, in another room uh, coordinating all this uh, with uh, Bonya, Zoran and Malta. And uh, just for me to wish you a good afternoon. Thanks so much. I'm Brian McGuire.